Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Any health-related information on the following show provides general information only. Content presented on any show by any host or guest should not be substituted for a doctor's advice. Always consult your physician before beginning any new diet, exercise, or treatment program. Think about um, the generations and to say we want to make it a better place for our children and our children's children so that they... They, they, they know it's a better world for them. I think they can make it a better place. Heal the world. Make it a better place. For you and for me and the entire human race. There are people dying. If you care enough for living, make a better place for you. Hello everyone, this is Joni Aldrich and Chris Jerry. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing very well, Joni, very well. Thank you. As always, glad to have you here and uh, glad to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about your website. And I want to give that right now in case you know we get in a crunch at the end. Chris, sure. EmilyJerryFoundation.org. And uh, always thankful to back your cause because it's such an incredible need. If you want to say a few words about that before we get started. Yes. uh, Thank you very much, Joni. Um, I started uh, my advocacy efforts uh, shortly after uh, my daughter's, two-year-old daughter, Emily's, uh, tragic uh, death from a a, uh, preventable uh, medication error. Uh, in 2006, and um, our foundation is all about um, pushing things forward uh, in terms of preventable medical error. Preventable medical error takes uh, the lives, unfortunately, of uh, close to 200,000 people a year Mm -hmm. across the United States. And uh, the key word there, Joni, as you and I have often discussed, is the fact that these are called preventable medical errors for a reason. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so the core mission of, of the Emily Jerry Foundation is, is really trying to find ways to impact or reduce the probability of human error entering into the equation during the course of treatment for any patient and, and lowering, uh, thus lowering uh, preventable medical errors overall. So exactly. Well, and it's such a such a worthy worthy cause, and you work so hard at it. And uh, we we thank you for always as always for being my co-host for this very important show. It's been impressive to me so far the amazing people that we've had join us, and today is certainly no exception to that. We really have been uh, blessed with some some wonderful guests uh, on the show. I think we had our first show uh, when uh, back in uh, June, I believe. June, mm-hmm. June the fourth. Yes. yes, and uh, we, we, each and every guest has 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 just been, uh, you know, just a, absolutely amazing to me, um, and uh, it's it's been great to get to a chance to speak with with wonderful people uh, like we're going to uh, with our guest today. 
Absolutely. Well, before we get to that, let me just tell uh, the listeners very quickly what's going to be on Caregiving SOS tomorrow. Um, I've had Stephanie on, Ladies Who Inspire, Stephanie Zimmerman. She is the co-founder of My Heart, Your Hands. And um, she founded this organization to discuss the impact that cancer has had throughout her lifetime, uh, including uh, she had... Uh, as a as a young child, she had cancer treatment, and they thought everything went great. But in 2008, her heart failed, secondary to the chest radiation and the medication that she had for her Ewing sarcoma. And she had to have a heart transplant. Uh, so Stephanie is going to be with me on Caregiving SOS tomorrow to um, talk about her organization, yes, but also the impact that these types of diagnosis and, and these long-term effects have on families. So I'm very excited about that. It sounds like it'll be a great show. Oh, she's an amazing guest. As a matter of fact, we could probably have her on Advocacy Heals You at some point in the future. It sure sounds like it. Definitely. No. Well, you know, Chris, today's guest reminds me very much of uh, the fact that, you know, looking back, it's so funny when you look in the rearview mirror. <laughs> because, yeah. you, you know, you look in that rearview mirror and you think about the things that have happened with your loved one. You, and I know you feel the same way about Aunt little Emily. But when I look back at Gordon and mine's journey, um, you know, some of the things that the doctors wanted him to have for his cancer treatment, we could have asked better questions. We could have been, uh, we tried, we thought we were prepared. You know, we, we researched, and but we, we really could have, um, we really could have done more research. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you or not, but there was one particular surgery that was very, very painful that Gordon had where they sucked all the bone marrow out of his upper legs mm -hmm. uh, and put in rods. That particular surgery, we always wondered if it was really, truly necessary. It was very painful, and every treatment he had after that, it took him longer to recover. Uh, so, you know, you, you look back and you think, did we make good decisions? Do we right. ask the right questions? Well, I think, I, I think one thing uh, that we should mention to our listeners, you and I have discussed uh, before, but I, I think maybe you can expound on it a little bit more, Joni, uh, with your situation with Gordon, and that is, explain to your listeners, uh, you know, how did you and Gordon, when, when Gordon was initially diagnosed, you probably, well, I know you had that, that feeling that, you know, you're, uh, Gordon's going to be treated uh, at uh, one of the nation's uh, leading facilities uh, by the best doctors, the best care team. He's going to be in great hands. So maybe explain to our listeners how you felt before Gordon had that, that procedure, I think would be well, relevant it, to today's guest. And it, it is great. That's a great question. Uh, in, in fact, you know, in retrospect, we always felt that we were sold a bill of goods. And yep. there's no other way to say that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know if it was ego or money. You know, we are going to talk a little bit about that. And, and again, and I always want to say this. Mm -hmm. I always want to mention that this is not all doctors. This right. is not all medical facilities. Um, this is where we as patients need to be empowered, alert, and involved. But we were sold a bill of goods. We were told he was 45, 43 years old when he was diagnosed. We were told that he was going to have this, this, and this treatment. Six months later, he was going to be out, back to business, good as new, wonderful, Everything was going to be perfect, and it didn't happen. Well, see, I think um, that's, that's, that's pretty common, though, you know, how you and Gordon started, you know, the journey together when he, with his initial diagnosis when he's 43. Both of you just had to be so scared with that first diagnosis, and, and you're kind of at risk. You're kind of vulnerable, I think, at that point um, because, you know, you're scared, uh, for Gordon, you're scared for, for everything going forward, and then you're meeting with people, the physicians, the, the prospective treatment teams and things, and you think that, you know, 
these are the people that definitely have the answers. This is, these are the people that, that are, are going to make my husband better. So I, I think you have that, the point I'm getting at is I, I, I think because you're, 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 you're in that stage you're in with the shock of the diagnosis, I think that makes you more vulnerable to just completely trust the institution of medicine with your course of treatment. So I think today's show, what we're probably going to hit on is how can, how can yes, we do have the leading medical facilities in the nation to treat these types of afflictions, but how can we as consumers of healthcare, how can we, uh, after that initial diagnosis, how can, how can we better educate ourselves and, and learn more about the process, what's going to happen, what typically happens, you know, is, is the physician that you do your initial consult with, is that the one that's going to actually be performing the procedure or will it be possibly a resident? Right. So I, ho- hopefully that makes some sense, Joni. It makes absolutely sense. And, you know, what's amazing to me as well is I was looking at uh, Dan's website, our guest today, and there's something about teaching hospitals on there. And, of course, Gordon was originally, uh, he was originally treated at a teaching hospital. So, you know, the things that we're going to talk about today are very serious. And without further ado, because I'm sure he really wants to get a word in here. Yes. (laughs) Let's go ahead and introduce our guest today, Dan Walter, writer, author of Collateral Damage, A Patient, A New Procedure, and The Learning Curve, member of the Consumers Union Safe Patient Project, uh, collaboration with and support of other patient safety advocates with writing and public policy planning. Welcome to Advocacy Heals You, Dan. Welcome, Dan. Oh, thanks, Chris. And Joni, I, I really, really appreciate the uh, opportunity to be on the show. You guys are doing great work, and I really appreciate you letting me be part of it. Oh, thank you. Absolutely amazing. And, I, and for the listeners, uh, I was telling Dan before the show, uh, we connected on LinkedIn, and when I read part, when I went to the book because it, it, it intrigued me. The name intrigued me, Collateral Damage. Uh, and I, I went to the uh, Amazon books. You can go in there and you can look inside. And I read the first couple of pages, and I think my jaw fell to my chest. Mine did as well. I, 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 I just could not believe it. So, Dan, maybe you could start at the beginning about the, the journey that you went through with your wife, Pam. All right. Well, um, in the late 1990s, my wife um, developed uh, atrial fibrillation. And my wife, she was an RN. Uh, We lived in Annapolis, Maryland at the time. And um, she, uh, we both um, were casting about for the best way to to treat this problem. We went to our our local uh, cardiologist and um, they they were trying various things, and there was and, and I have to back up a little bit. She had um, before they really addressed the AFib, she had another uh, cardiac condition called syncope. They they think, which is something they do. People have this; they um, their heart pauses sometimes, or they, uh, they 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 do have irregular heartbeats. But one of the electro electrophysiologists that we saw initially decided he was going to try and treat her by putting in a, a pacemaker. And and how would that how would that differ, Dan, from uh, AFib? Um, well, I, and a, a, atrial fibrillation, just for our listeners who aren't aware, is 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 just an irregular heartbeat, if I un- understand correctly. Well, yeah, and a lot of people, it's it's a really uh, it's a, com- a fairly common condition, and there's it, it, a wide range of you know a lot of people have a, have AFib and never know it, and then there are a lot of people who have AFib and are very what they call highly symptomatic, and you know it, and it's, it's sorry, it can be debilitating, and it's a serious thing. Although the condition in and of itself is not life-threatening, if, if, unless you you know get a clot or something, there are problems down the road if you have it and don't treat it, but. Um, what it, it just feels like your heart is—it's it, your it's the, the 
pump, one of the pumping chambers of the heart, the uh, the atrium, so it gathers up the blood. And one of the instead of like a regular pulsing squeeze, it fibrillates and beats erratically. Mm-hmm. And um, so the the condition that she uh, originally had that they were trying to treat was 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 related to that. And what sort of evolved was that they were going to treat the AFib with the pacemaker as well by using drugs to lower the heart rate so that her pacemaker would kick in and regulate the heart on a regular basis so she could have regular rhythm and beats. I see. And the problem, uh, all kind of looking back, you know, it all, <laughs> it all, it all started with when, when this first doctor put the pacemaker in, he put a lead in, when they, they put these leads in with catheters and they put them in through the heart uh, and the lead, sort of the tip of the pacemaker lead, is supposed to be implanted on the inside of the inside of the heart, and you have a little like a screw tip in there. Mm-hmm. And this one had he put it in too far, so it poked through her heart wall. So it actually it, perforated uh, the exactly. heart wall. Exactly. Yes, and of course, you know, in medicine, they, the doctors are when we finally uh, confronted with it that what this must be they didn't call it a perforation they call it a microperf you know minimize it right so, exactly you know but she you know this 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 wire was pacing so when the pacemaker went off it was thumping her her chest wall muscles so it's extremely uncomfortable as you can imagine boom 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 you know so it was going to be frustrating, and then the way they chose to deal with that was not to extract the lead because that would have been fairly difficult. I mean, doable, but it was a you know comprehensive it was, a, it was an undertaking. So they figured they would do it with drugs first. So they put her on all these antiarrhythmic drugs, which turned out to be when we look back, when we realized that it was incompatible with uh, the pacemaker. The AFib uh, drugs, you know, when used in combination with the pacemaker, were actually uh, aggravating the situation and making the AFib worse. So her local, another cardiologist we went to see uh, in Annapolis said, well, you know, they, they've got a, a procedure up at Johns Hopkins, and it's called catheter ablation. It's fairly new, but, you know, it's Johns Hopkins, and you know, they know what they're doing up there, and maybe you go have a, a consultation up there. So we did, and they, they it was presented to us as, this is, and we assumed, you know, <laughs> when you, you were talking before about trying to be informed and, and making choices as a consumer, I mean, it's, in a way, it's unfortunate that we have to look at ourselves as medical consumers, but, you know, that's, you know, you go in there thinking, well, I'm, I'm a patient, and these are doctors, and they're going to make me feel better. That's their job. That's what they want to do. And Johns Hopkins, we're in Annapolis, so that was, you know, about 40 minutes away, and we felt very fortunate that it's arguably the best hospital in the world, and aren't we lucky? And right, and they had this pioneering, you know, this new procedure, and and we were assuming that it was fully vetted and safe, and you know, that's and people say, well, you know, it's a teaching hospital; you should have known better. That's the, <laughs> and I had assumed that a teaching hospital is where they would teach excellence and care, and you know, right, patients right. would come first. <laughs> right, absolutely. But people on the other side of it who are in the business you know to them it's like well yeah it's a teaching hospital people got to learn somewhere (laughs) but as uh, Joni was saying uh, you know we were sold a bill of goods from the get-go and the doctor just out flat out lied to us from the very beginning you know he said this here's the success rate it was you know 85 something percent uh, Complication rate, you know, three to five percent. That's normal, and that's and usually these complications arrive from anesthesia, things like that. So it's nothing. We've done lots of these things here, and we're very good at it. And you're in the best hands, and this is the best hospital in the country. I've done lots of these, you know, and I feel like okay, well, all right, <laughs> we'll do it, you know. Um, and so the procedure involves a snake, a catheter up into your heart, and it goes through the separation in your heart, the, um, I forget what they call that, but it, there's a that dividing uh, wall that divides the walls of the heart chambers, and you go, they go through the transeptal, they, they go through that, and then they supposedly, they, they, for, they have two or three catheters in there, and they, they map out where these electrical uh, impulses are coming from, they're errant impulses that make your heart misfire and quiver, and so they had this little electronic 
uh, catheter that's shaped like a lasso. And uh, it, it's supposed to place it against the inside of the heart wall, and it would show you where these, this errant electrical, electrical activity is. And then they would follow up with an ablation catheter, which is basically you know a hot tip catheter, and just burn scars there and block that that, tish, that tissue from firing off and block those electrical pathways. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. <coughs> oh, excuse me. And... Um, well, we agreed to that, and uh, one thing you know we didn't know was that this was at the time an experimental procedure, and we found that the mm-hmm. doctor had called it such uh, right around the time he had proposed it to us. And you know, because uh, after things went wrong, I went back and, and looked up what was what and found out. Yeah, we were deceived from the get go. And mm-hmm. further, the it wasn't the doctor that told us he was going to do the procedure that sold us on the procedure was not the doctor who performed the procedure. Because being a teaching hospital, he had a fellow in training do the job. So we don't Mm. know if this doctor had done any of these things before. And we found out later, this is one of the toughest and trickiest procedures that an electrophysiologist can perform. Because after all, what you're doing is maneuvering tiny little wires around inside a person's heart. And at the time, the imagery was just uh, fluoroscopy. It was two, two-dimensional x-ray films. Mm-hmm. So the, they couldn't really tell where these catheters were. They had to, quote-unquote, infer <laughs> you know, from, right. uh, from the x-rays you know, where this catheter was in relation to the heart wall muscles and whatnot. And, it, and this uh, fellow was in there operating the, the catheter, and he snaked the catheter up inside her heart and went through the transeptal area there and inside the, got into her, the chamber of her heart. And then to deploy this catheter, which I found out later was a brand-new instrument, and he had never used it before, and he turned the knob the wrong way. So the catheter went the wrong direction, and it spiraled and corkscrewed down into the lower chamber of her heart through the mitral valve muscles of her heart. Oh, oh my God. So they were mapping with this other catheter and saying, okay, um, let's move the, you know, the other catheter over. And they went, he went to withdraw it and back into the sheath so they could move it, and it was tugging back, and they couldn't pull it out. You know, what's going on here? So they had to go get uh, uh, echocardiogram, I think it was, and take pictures. And they said, oh, yeah, look at that catheter. It's stuck. It's tangled in those microvalve muscles. Mm-hmm. And they kept turning the knob this way and that, which we found out later that was just making things worse. So here's this thing. It's like tugging right back. Right. And, you know, heart muscles are very tough things. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a muscle. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, they're very, very hard tough, strong muscles, mm-hmm. and they couldn't get this thing out, so they had three doctors come and try and pull it out, and finally they called in another guy, and he decided just he's going to roll the dice and just yank it and see what happens, and if it comes out, fine, you know, but the thing was so tangled up in there, when he yanked it, he just ripped out these mitral valve muscles from my wife's oh, arm. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, and, <they're> suddenly <laughs> and so the... They, you know, they pull, they get the catheter out there, and there's all this, you know, flesh on the bit of the on the end of the catheter, and my wife's blood pressure started dropping. And this is not under general anesthesia. This is something called Versed. Uh, I think they call it twilight anesthesia. I'm not sure, but so she starts moaning. I mean, it's, you know, it's hurting. <laughs> you know, rip out heart muscles. Oh my out. god! So they, you know, they cranked up her, her her more pain medicine, which made her heart rate drop further, and they got her on an oxygen mask. And so they're basically, you know, she's dying. And I, you know, one of the things that it took me a long time to, to write the book in a way, the reason it took as long as it did, oh, relatively, I suppose, was that I would read through these records, the medical record and transcripts of things, and I just couldn't believe that, <laughs> you know, that can't be right. You would read something, mm-hmm. and you know, it's got to be a mistake. And it took me a few times, and I went back, and I was like, oh, my God, they did. They kept going with the procedure, because what I found out later was they were conducting a, a trial 
it wasn't a formal clinical trial, you know, where you involved the hospital internal review board or anything, but the doctor was just doing it for his own research purposes and to publish papers. It, it, they kept going with the procedure because they needed to finish it and have it on the books as, as a completed, you know, number 23 of 400 people getting, you know, whatever, whatever, or of 75 oh people getting this particular procedure. So for, for like 45 minutes, while she should have been, should have been rushed to the OR and fixed immediately, you know, they kept, kept on for like 40 minutes till they considered this procedure complete. Well, and this mm. kind of this kind of ties back to what you had mentioned before, Dan, um, which I it, it, a, a lot of things bother me about what you just explained to us. But two things: uh, you and Joni both expressing how you felt as though you'd been sold a bill of goods. What concerns me, and what I'd, I'd like for you to maybe um, explain to our listeners a little better, is. You know, you were you were you were in that 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 moment where you just wanted to get the best treatment for 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 your wife and her affliction, and and you're meeting with with um, a a physician who is is selling you that bill of goods and telling you that you have an eighty five percent success rate on a procedure, and did he tell you that it was experimental at that time? No, because he didn't. It, <laughs> and 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 because he didn't, that infuriates me. Because yeah, you have an eighty-five percent success rate, and I am being a little sarcastic here, but in in saying if you've only done five of those procedures, and well, you have an eighty-five percent success rate, that's not too good. Well, the thing is, the astounding thing, Chris, is that eighty-five percent success rate was a flat-out lie too. He didn't know what the success rate was. That's what he was using mm. my wife for. They were going to, he was drawing on other studies from other hospitals. I still don't know how many he did there before he talked to us. But the success rate generally was more like, you know, 60 to 65%. And that was after multiple procedures. Right. And, the, and the complication rate was more like 10 to 13%. Right. Mm. So when the guy's saying, well, it's 85% success rate, that was a flat. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But I'll lie, too. And one of the reasons, you know, he was uh, encouraging my wife to go through this procedure was because when you're doing a study, they're going to look, if you're, if you're doing a study, and this was all corporate-driven, by the way, there was a lot of money and startup money and IPOs. Mm. I mean, I mean there, were, there was a lot of Silicon Valley money and Wall Street money behind developing uh, therapies and, and devices and procedures that would sell because this is a huge, you know, burgeoning problem in America. And if you could find a cure for AFib, well, you know, you, you, there's a lot of money in it. So this this technology just kind of developed and took off on its own. And when you so when you do a study, you don't want to to get in all these infirmed or aged, aged or people who are sick or anything. You know, you want healthy young specimens who are going to do well in your study. And survive, and you know, and so here was my wife at the time. She was forty-nine, she, uh, healthy as a horse. Otherwise, she had no other medical problems. Yes, and her heart was structurally sound. So it was like, yeah, I mean, here's an ideal, ideal candidate for this procedure: young and healthy and strong. You know? So, so Dan, I, I I apologize for interrupting uh, oh, no. you, and and I want to get you back to to telling us more about. Um, the most important subject in this uh, matter, which is your your wife and and her story. So I apologize for deviating a little bit there, but oh no, uh, not at all. That was a, a good point. Well, they um uh, this so they finally they got the catheter out of there and they finally finished up. And I, all these things I found out later, you know, uh, at the time in real time when this was happening, they come out and they say, well, you know, we had a little problem and we may have tore this little muscle in our heart, but the and the doctor came out and he said, I was operating the catheter, 
And I turned around to, to switch uh, catheter sheets or something. So I took my hand off the knob, and the catheter got sucked down into the mitral valve. You know, and I'm terribly sorry, and I took my eye off the ball, and that's how this happened. And I was a little, you know, kind of conciliatory at the time, because, well, you know, these things happen, Doc. Don't worry about it. I, you know, you're just human. You were trying to help. Um, um, and so they took her down to surgery, and he was saying, well, you know, we probably couldn't get a slot into the ER until, till, I mean, in the OR until tomorrow, and uh, we'll take care of it then. So at the time, I was still thinking this is, you know, they can fix it. The surgeons, though, came in and said, look, you know, if you don't fix this right now, she's going to die. So you've got to do this. It's open-heart surgery because we can fix that valve. Or, oh, my God. Know. Now it's open-heart surgery. That's the bad thing about this is it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm like, well, you know, do what you got to do. I just think you'll fix it. Exactly. So, yeah, they did open-heart surgery, and they couldn't fix the valve. It was destroyed, so they had to replace it. So they put in this prosthetic, uh, this titanium St. Jude valve, and um, they, they, she got through that surgery okay, and they got her up in the chair. They like to get them up early and all that stuff, and uh, extubate her. When they, and then they, they took the breathing tube out of her and whatnot, and I thought, well, okay, we made it through there. But then she had a stroke. <gasps> But oh my God. They, they had let her um, oxygen level uh, go down too low. So she was in a coma mm. for about two and a half weeks. And they couldn't just couldn't get her off the ventilator. You know, one thing to another. And things were spiraling out of control. And I thought, well, you know, I'm really, I thought she was going to die. I mean, so I had to go up to the executive office. I mean, I had, had doctors there and camp outside his office. And, and just wait there and wait there and insist you get down there and you fix this thing, you know. Which they 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 finally did get her get her off the respirator, and but she had a, a stroke and uh, and and Dan, were they monitoring uh, monitoring her like her pulse oximetry? Yeah, I mean, sure. how did how did they not know that her oxygen had dropped so low that it it put her in a position to to get a, a stroke on top of things? You know, I don't know. I mean, all you can do is I go back and look at the record and say, oh, here, you know, her O2 was down to, right. you know, 63, whatever. I don't know what it was, but, you know, that's that's what it was. And and, and so all, and all the time she'd be there in this coma and she's staring up and it's talking about teaching hospitals. This was just appalling to me. I mean, I, 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 would, I would sit there and i see her eyes are at half mass, like sort of half open, and then there's this bright light over her. I kept having to shoo that away. But I I kept saying, couldn't you put something in her eyes or close her eyes or something? Like, oh, don't worry about it. It's you know. And sure enough, a few days later, some doctor comes in from the Wilmer Eye Clinic there, and he says he's got this gang of uh, students behind him, and he looks at my wife and he opens up, lifts up one of her eye eyelids, and he says, oh, you see here, this is exposure keratopathy. This is when the eyes aren't closed all the way, so scratches up the corneas. We see a lot of that here in the ICU. <sighs> and they all trundled out. I was like, what the hell? Where am I? You know, I couldn't believe it. Wow. So finally they put lubricants in her eyes and taped them shut and all this stuff. And um, You know, there were just, uh, and it was just dozens of little more insults, injury, you know, like that. And then, you know, the institution itself afterwards, they were just like, well, tough luck, goodbye. You know, mm. Find this uh, consent form and... Uh, you know, and the consent form was just a just a joke. I mean, it's it's a the at the time I don't know if they changed it by now, but it it, the, it was a it was just a form you know copy of a form sixth generation copy or something, and it said I I consent to let doctor you know blank and staff do X Y and Z and so forth, and if anything happens, it's your fault and all that. But <laughs> the thing and staff, I would you would assume that that's just support, you know nurses and techs or whatever like that but it turns out that they're they're claiming that as a license to let students and trainees do all kinds of work on you but they're so generic mm. and wide open you know and uh, it's just awful well let's turn the tables a little bit uh, Dan to when you you know got past what was going on and and we talked a little bit before the show and and your wife is now on disability but she is she is much better than what could have happened 
you know, at the time, yeah. which, you know, it's unfortunate to say that. But, you know, you wrote this book, and I'm going to tell you, you know, part of the reason that I wrote The Saving of Gordon Lifelines to Win Against Cancer was because of the same issues, you know, because of this um, collateral damage, not necessarily a procedure, but certainly the way that things are in cancer treatment um, or in cancer world. But when I went to write the book, I can tell you I was absolutely terrified that I was going to get sued. And so, you know, I know that those types of things had to be going through your mind when you wrote this book, but kudos for doing it. Well, you know, uh, uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book uh, in the way that I did was that, and I want I just named names, and like, I wanted to do something different, which was, you know, because you read most of these books and you say, well, my son, and, you know, it's heartbreaking to me. I go to these consumers' union safe patient projects, and everyone is there because they lost somebody, a wife, a daughter, a husband, you know, oh, God, it's right. awful. But when they write out on their blogs, and we are all so conditioned, and, and I was too, that you be careful what you say. Be careful, they'll get you, you know. And they, people told me that up in Baltimore. So you're going after Hopkins, watch out, they'll get you. You know, and I I remember the first time I wrote on a blog on, on, on the, the Baltimore uh, Sun, um, their their blog, that talk forum there about medicine, and I I headlined it, botched job at John Hopkins, and I was like really worried. I lost sleep, and I oh my God, whatever you know, things say they're going to come get me for saying that. <laughs> right, but, exactly. But, but you know, one thing I realized when the more I looked into this, and this is all a lot of it thanks to the internet was you could go through and say, look, this, I'm not saying this, they're saying it. And, I went and, and the thing about my book, it's mostly the most damaging things in there are words from the doctors themselves and the hospital themselves. So, uh, yeah, and I got to the point, I was like taunting them, go ahead, sue me, sue me, I'd love it. You know? <laughs> yes. You know, what are you going to do to me anyway? You know, rip my wife's heart out again, you know? I mean, everybody, we had a business that failed after this. I mean, everything just went to hell. I was like, well, you know what, sue me. Go ahead. But here is the plain, unvarnished truth, damn it, you know. So you do what you want. And I wanted to break through that intimidation factor of everybody. Like I say, this, this consumer reports, uh, I mean, almost everybody, you're so conditioned. We are also conditioned by the establishment there. It's like, oh, you better not. You'll get in trouble. Don't name the institution. Don't name the doctor. They'll come and get you, you know. And I was like, well, come and get me. Here, you said this, you said this, you said this, you did this, and I've got the records, I've got the quotes, I've got the facts, here it is, you know. And I went back and I looked, um, as this unfolded, I mean, I, got, I looked for, uh, through, uh, this, this involved the development of a uh, device and procedure and these catheters and so forth, and there's money, and you always follow the money trail, and I would find FDA transcripts and, uh, company documents and their uh, prospectus about what they're trying to do with these things and and go down and then look up on uh, these doctors their own words and what they they were conducting research clinical trials on the American people just de facto clinical trials not formalized but you know where they would have to get permission and and tell you and inform you what they were doing they were just doing it you know and basically it's the company hiring out these doctors to perform these field trials and report the results back to them so they could hone their product and get it back to market faster. You know, and, 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 and that's what the book is about. And I know a lot of the patient safety movement, and, and, and maybe in your cases too, I, it, was, it was medical error. And people, well, a lot of the reaction I get to my book is like, gee, why are you so vengeful? You know, mistakes happen. I'm like, this was not a mistake. <laughs> right. This was corruption of the highest order and a betrayal of a patient's trust. Right, and mistakes. Makes, yeah, they made mistakes, all right, but it started out with deception and greed and corruption. Hmm. You know, well, I'm not letting this guy. It's like, oh, would you well, sorry, mistake, forgive and forget. You know, and and Joni, this kind of brings to mind, you know, this all, all of this talk of, uh, you know, and and I know it goes on. You know, the, these facilities and 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 manufacturers sometimes, uh, you know put the patient's safety, compromise patient safety, you know, uh, as a result of pursuing those profits. One of those things, uh, Joni, I've shared with you that upsets me uh, with my daughter, Emily, 
was the fact that um, for those listeners who aren't aware, um, my daughter uh, had passed away in 2006 from a pharmacy technician compounding er error that occurred in the facility where Emily was being treated. And what this pharmacy technician had done was taken... Uh, was supposed she was supposed to take an empty or a uh, a standard off the shelf bag of saline with 0.9% sodium chloride um, she was supposed to use that but they ran out of inventory in the mm. in in the pharmacy and this is a standard solution that's used on a daily basis and this pharmacy tech ended up taking an empty compounding bag and filling it full of of hypertonic 23.4% saline. Mm-hmm. My, my point here is the pharma, clinical pharmacy running out of uh, standard bags of saline is a business issue. Mm-hmm. And it makes me, it infuriates me when patients' safety is put at risk. My daughter's life was put at risk because of a business issue. Exactly. I mean, if, if, if you really dissect these things. Oh, sure. It's like uh, uh, cesarean sections, you know, they're, they're, they're scheduled for, mm. for business purposes, not on medical exactly. you know. Um, exactly. They can make more money on them. Mm-hmm. And yet right. they're cutting a person open and, you know, not taking into consideration later problems. Yeah, exactly. And just because it's easier to schedule on a 9 to 5, you can say, okay, you're having your baby on Tuesday at 3 o'clock and you don't have to wake the doctor up at 4 a.m. and all these attendant costs and whatnot. It's just it's smoother for the system that way. Uh, and the, it's perceived it's for to the patient as easier, so it's okay to do. Well, interestingly enough, I, I have one more thing to interject, uh, something that you'll find a little bit amusing, Dan, that you were discussing earlier about um, concerns about lawsuits and different things. Um, When I was writing the book, and again, I did not, like you said, I did not use the doctor's name. I didn't use the facility's name. I was trying to make it, put a, a positive spin on the book. The Saving of Gordon. That's why it's The Saving of Gordon. Um, But anyway, um, I went to my insurance company. I had a $1 million umbrella. And I said, you know, so I told them, I said, I'm writing this book, and I just want to make sure that I have enough coverage in case anything happens. So can we increase it? Do you know that they refused? (laughs) Wow. So so that tells you some things right there, but, but... Absolutely, they refuse, and so that's part of the reason that there were not more specifics about the doctor. Just like with you, you know, we're and you, Chris. I mean, it's funny because we all have a base here that the reason that we do our advocacy work is because we don't want other people to go through the things that our loved ones went through. Precisely. You hit the nail on the head, Joni. Uh, to bring things forward and take these, the, the, you know, a, a horrible, you know, senseless event uh, in our lives and, and push it forward so that, again, the same things don't keep happening over and over again like they did to, uh, you know, Dan's wife. I mean, that is just absolutely horrible for every aspect. Yeah, and I, that's true. And I, I get a lot of that. People, the, the frustrating thing for me is that this, you know, atrial fibrillation. I understand it's a difficult thing to deal with, and everybody wants there to be an easy answer, or just like we did. <laughs> you know? Well, and, wanted, and and this is hey, hey, it's the same thing with cancer. Everybody right. wants an easy answer, but there there may not be an easy answer. But in the same token, you know, what happened was, you know, there was an error. Instead of confronting the error, um, they tried to cover up the error, and it ended up getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Thank God your wife survived. Yeah. Uh, oh. I mean, you know, when I was first reading, trust me, when I was reading those first few pages of your book, I was thought, I thought, oh, she's toast. She's, she just could not have survived this this thing that you're describing. So yeah, yeah. yeah she's very lucky. I, yeah, I think she would have died if you know we weren't all there agitating and advocating for her. You know, because I and I shudder to think. You know, my wife is a nurse, and her family has uh, she has nurses in her family, 
so the, you know we, we you know we we knew some we had some solid ground to stand on and we and when things looked bleak there we started agitating saying look well, we started making noise and whatnot but I still to this day I mean I know people who um, I know a woman whose husband uh, just a great guy they, they, they they've been married forever and ever and ever and he got sick and went up to Johns Hopkins she was very proud of her association she knew all these guys up there and. He went in for a relatively routine heart procedure, and he wound up dying. And it, was, it wasn't the procedure was fine, but afterwards it was the aftercare. And there's no reason that should have happened. It was in the recovery phase, you know, and something went wrong. And she was just, well, they did the best they could. I, you know, and and most people uh, who aren't, you know, they just they want to believe they're in good hands. They want to believe people did the right thing. And you know, if you and and a lot of times just don't know any better. You know that you then the doctors are just not going to tell you the truth most of the time. That hey, we made a mistake and here's what happened. They're going to say, well, there was a complication. We did the best we could. Yeah, mm. and that's like I when don't... I so when I when I wrote this, I was like, you know, know your rights, stand up for it, and 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 be informed and hold them accountable. You know, that kind of thing. Hold okay. them accountable and push it forward. And and I I you know share with our listeners, Dan. You know, your 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 true inspiration for writing the book again goes back to I, I believe what what Joni just mentioned and that is the desire to not want this same event that happened to your wife to happen to others that's right and and the, the, like I said the frustrating you you know you google uh, um, AFib right now and, and you'll you'll get a whole pages and pages a lot of it is industry propaganda and these uh, what they call astroturf patient safe patient advocate groups you know things. right and and they're all they're all at, they're all um, pounding this uh, procedure, saying, "Oh, here we go. You know, you got AFib, get a catheter ablation, we'll fix you right up." And you know, and they're throwing around all these inflated safety and, and uh, success rates and things like that. And uh, you know, I write the, I I wrote my book to say to wait, tell people, look, you know, I used to think that too, and I used to want I, I still everybody wants there to be uh, you know fix this. I need an easy, relatively easy way to fix this thing, and I want to believe that there's an easy fix there. But I am I'm here to tell you that there is not an easy fix for this, and this procedure may work for people. Some people it might be right, but it, you know it, it's being oversold. I guess is my big point. This it's being oversold. The risks are underestimated, and I hear from lots of people who've been injured and hurt, and I keep trying to say, look, I don't, you know, you want the procedure? I understand. Go for it, but know what you're getting into. Know what you're well, in for. Know what the risks are. And when words like experimental are left out. When yeah. courses of treatment are being proposed, mm-hmm. that well, that's I, just criminal, you know, it, it really is, and it, it, it's very dishonest. Because had you known that that one major fact, yeah, you and your wife would have been prepared to either say, "Okay, we're going to take our chances with this experimental procedure. It hasn't been done that many times. Here's the real success rate, so on and so forth." Um, but you almost feel violated, I'm sure, in the sense that you weren't given that opportunity to make that decision exactly for, her, right. for her course of treatment. And, exactly and right. I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they also indicated that one surgeon who was highly qualified was going to do the procedure, and it turned out to be a totally different doctor as well. Well, that's right. It was a tra- they were training uh, a fellow to do the procedure, yeah. which was... Part of their business model, uh, you know, for this, for this procedure in general, is to develop these tools and and these catheters and the procedure in general, and then go out and sell it in the heartland. And to do that, you had to train operators and send them out there. And so this fellow was doing, who I believe, I, it was his first one, most likely that I can tell. So I mean, one of the reasons that we went to Johns Hopkins is so we could have the best guy doing the best procedure. You know, <laughs> so it turns out we get someone who never did the, uh, an experimental procedure. You know, it's just totally. So one of the takeaways here that I think is really, really important is to make sure that everyone involved in your loved one's care, when you go in for a surgical procedure, that that you look at that doctor and you say, especially in a teaching hospital, no, 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 you, you perform the procedure, no one else. 
And if you can't perform the procedure, no one else, if you say to me, oh, it's because it's a teaching hospital, then, oh, by the way, I'm taking her somewhere else. That's right, and you can put that on the consent form, you know, because you can, if you, if you, that's the other thing, you know, when it's all, all set up, when they wheel you in there in the hospital, my wife, that morning for her procedure, it's about 6.30 in the morning, she's in there in a wheelchair, you know, you're, you're dazed, and you've got these bright lights on you there, and you hand you this clipboard with a ream of paper on it, sign here, sign here, sign here, sign, you know, I mean, who's going to read all that fine print, you know? So basically, you go back and trust that your doctor is looking out for your best interest. Well, you know, you can't do that. And you can look on these consent forms and find that little fine print that says, uh, I understand that this is a teaching hospital and that uh, trainees and fellows may be performing my... You cross that out with your pen. Awesome. And you say, no, I want the doctor that I contracted to do this procedure to do this procedure. And you have the perfectly, you have the right to do that. You, and you're foolish to not do that, frankly. Yes. Insist on, it, insist on it and be straightforward. Yeah. Wonderful advice. Wonderful advice. Well, I hate to say it, gentlemen, but we're at the end of our time together, and I just hate that because I think there's so much else that could be said here. But I want to give the websites um, and the book name again. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. The website is collateral-well, it's a hyphen-damage.net, and I'll you know, basically, uh, you can go there. There's wonderful information about the book. Dan, congratulations for being a bestseller on Amazon.com. Uh, the book is Collateral Damage, A Patient, A New Procedure, and The Learning Curve. Again, the author is Dan Walter. And thank you so much, Dan, for coming and sharing your story. Uh, please give, your be- give our best uh, to your wife. And, uh, you know, she's been through so, so very much, and I'm sure she's a blessing to have every day in your life. That's right. (laughs) Thank you both, and keep up the good work that you guys are doing. Excellent work. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. And, Chris, I'm going to give your website very quickly, Emily Jerry Foundation, and that's spelled Jerry, just like the first name, J-E-R-R-Y, emilyjerryfoundation.org. And my website is Joni, J-O-N-I, Aldrich, A-L-D-R-I-C-H dot com. I want to thank you for listening in today and uh, thank the person that was in the chat room for W4CS that says Gordon left you a gift and a voice to help others know what questions to ask. Uh, I appreciate the um, people that give me support as well. So um, Chris will be back next week for a wonderful Advocacy Heals You. And until then... Have a great evening. Thank you, Johnny.